Welcome to the 469th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome historian of science and technology, Asif Siddiqui. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, as of March 14th, 2022, 967,721 people have died of COVID-19 in the United States. In Russia, 353,635 have died. In Ukraine, 112,459 have died of COVID-19, but those numbers are out of date and have not been updated in weeks. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, NASA engineer who died from the coronavirus reached this world and beyond. This was written by Kristen Hare and appeared August 10th, 2020 in the Tampa Bay Times. Jake Eckhart is starting to sift through the boxes, the papers, the ham radio gear. John Chitwood, his late husband, loved to build things and take them apart, but he rarely threw anything out. Eckhart found the letters he wrote to Mr. Chitwood after they met in 1995 at a convention for ham radio operators. They were with each other, they were with other people, but then stayed in touch. Eckhart didn't know Mr. Chitwood had saved the letters. His awards from a 37-year career at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center are scattered about the office, the garden shed, and the garage. And settled onto any available space, ham radio gear. During his life, Mr. Chitwood connected with ham radio operators all over the world. Through his work at NASA on planetary probes and satellites, he helped connect this world to places way beyond it. Chitwood, who was hospitalized for a fall and then tested positive for the coronavirus, died June 26, 2020. He was 73. In the mid-1950s, Mr. Chitwood's grandfather brought home a 17-tube Zenith shortwave radio, and before long, the elementary schooler took over a corner of his father's workbench and started building ham radios. His first, brother David Chitwood remembers, was made from a metal file box. Mr. Chitwood moved on to the radio club in high school at Baltimore Polytechnic Institute and got his novice license in ham radio in 1961. He loved to talk to people, his brother said, on the radio, at family events, as a DJ at his college radio station at Drexel University. At 18, through a program between his university and the industry, Mr. Chitwood started working at NASA's Goddard campus in Greenbelt, Maryland. There, he spent his career working on new ways to communicate. At Goddard, Mr. Chitwood's desk was covered with neat towers of papers and technical magazines. He could find anything in those piles quickly, said Michael Powers, who worked for Mr. Chitwood in the microwave systems branch. Kathy Long worked for him too and chose his team when she joined NASA because as one of the few women there at the time, she thought he'd be a supportive boss. She was right. He gave his young reports big jobs and hid in the back of group pictures, remembers Powers and Long, who were married. Chitwood worked on the Cosmic Background Explorer, or COBE. In 2006, two scientists won the Nobel Prize in Physics for work that looks back into the infancy of the universe and attempts to gain some understanding of the origin of galaxies and stars is based on measurements made with the help of the COBE satellite launched by NASA in 1989, they wrote. John was a major contributor to the success of that mission, Long said. 
During his career with NASA, Mr. Chitwood traveled around the world. He was easygoing, his husband said, and even tempered. At work and with family, Mr. Chitwood was intensely private. We had to be very careful in those days, Eckhart said. In 2002, Mr. Chitwood's longtime partner died. More than a decade later, Mr. Chitwood stopped his brother as he started to leave a holiday gathering. There's something I have to tell you, he said. I've fallen in love for the second time in my life. Mr. Chitwood and Eckert moved to St. Petersburg in 2015. They married in 2017. Here, Eckert said they traveled the world, had their best years together, and made friends and memories. One evening, Eckhart remembers Mr. Chitwood took his husband to stand in the front yard. Eckhart looked up at the night sky. Mr. Chitwood looked down at his watch. The space station should be coming over the horizon, he said. There it came, Eckhart said. It was just a little star that flew across the sky. Headline was NASA engineer who died from the coronavirus reached this world and beyond. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and this is one I've been looking forward to. Let me introduce my guest, Asif Siddiqui. Asif Siddiqui is a professor of history at Fordham University in New York. He writes and teaches on both the history of technology and modern Russian history, as well as the intersection of the two. He's written many books and articles on the history of space exploration, including the rocket, the Red Rocket's Glare, Space Flight and the Soviet Imagination. 1857 to 1957. More recently, his work has focused on global histories of infrastructure and technology, focusing particularly on Africa and South Asia. Currently working on a book under contract with the MIT Press, provisionally titled Departure Gates, Post-Colonial Histories of Space on Earth. And this year, he's on leave at Princeton University's Davis Center for Historical Studies, Asif Siddiqui, thanks for making time to join me on COVID Calls. Uh, thank you, Scott. It's, it's great to be here, finally. I know we had some scheduling issues, but I hope it all, you know, uh, I'm glad it all worked out in the end. Definitely worth it to have some time with you. And um, I wonder if we can start the way I usually do, just yeah. find out where you're calling from and get an update on how the pandemic is going there. Right. <clears throat> well, I am in New York City, and um, the pandemic... Um, like many other places, probably in the U.S., uh, seems to be, um, you know, um, the numbers are down, the, the, the positive rates and things like that. Um, but also psychologically, I think there seems to be a, a little bit of lightness, as in we might have, uh, we might be passing into a new stage. I know we felt like that before a couple of times, so I don't think anybody's under any illusions. But it, it does feel uh, perhaps it might, we might be gingerly entering something better perhaps and you have family in bangladesh is that right i do yes um extended family um um yes i do that so the things are a bit different there i mean for for obvious reasons it's <laughs> everywhere but um yeah i mean i can um i i think my sense is the numbers are declining there too i was checking today and um but um i know that um the just in general, um, the the numbers in Bangladesh have been, in relative terms, better than the U U.S. So, um, and um, there's been actually quite a number of um, uh, interesting um, sort of processes in Bangladesh, particularly related to COVID. That um, I'm not an expert, but it seems to be, perhaps had some effect uh, on mitigating the spread uh, of COVID there. One being um, widespread masking. And I think uh, there has been um, uh, there have been quite a number of studies actually um, that have shown that uh, the promotion of masking through public through the government basically public uh, promotion of masking has had quite a significant effect on people mainly poor people and rural people taking up the mask as a necessary part of their lives and that uh, in fact may have statistically mitigated the spread of COVID quite a bit in Bangladesh so. Um, yeah, so that's what's going on. And there has been, of course, um, I think, just like in most places, about 1% fatality, roughly, given the cases versus deaths. Yeah. So. One, I'm glad you mentioned the, um, the masking issue there. I mean, one of the guests I had, um, we talked about, I guess, there's a major study that's being done um, 
across thousands of people in Bangladesh about about the masking yes. issue. Um, right. Larger scale than studies that have actually been done in, in the United States, which yeah. I found quite fascinating. Yeah, the study was done in, in the fall of 2021. Um, there was a, there's a professor at Yale, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, um, but he was the sort of architect behind this. There were two studies, one on um, how does the promotion of masking affect the actual use of masking in terms of public um, advertisements and things like that. And the other study was on what how, what does masking do to the incidence of the spread of COVID. And in both cases, they found significant mitigation, uh, especially in the latter. That So I think that has, uh, and anecdotally, talking to uh, cousins and things like that back home, it seems like everybody masks. It's a normal. Oh, interesting. Uh, so, um, um, so yeah, I think that may have mitigated the, because Bangladesh's population is, is you know, I don't know, it's like 165 million people. So mm-hmm. one would have expected a very high uh, a number of deaths, but I think the number of deaths is roughly in the 30 to 50,000 um, range. So, yeah. yeah that's Which is study. bad, of course, but yeah. No, well, I know these days so it's hard terms, to talk yeah. about. I know. And um, I, that was uh, Jason Avalok, uh was one of the authors of that yeah. study. I actually had a chance to talk to him on COVID calls. Uh, great, great. Some point earlier this year, I've kind of things have all run together here in the last few weeks. <laughs> that's right. Um, would you mind sharing a personal memory of the pandemic? What's this time been like for you? Yeah. I was thinking about that when you shared that question with me. I mean, being in New York in the spring of 2020 was really um, um, quite an experience. Of course, at the time, we didn't know. But looking back on it, uh, April, May, June 2020 was really a weird and strange time. The streets were abandoned. You could walk down Times Square. There was nobody there. Uh, There was this kind of sort of... um, um, a, a very eerie sort of shadow hanging over New York City. I remember, of course, the frontline health workers who, you know, we all opened our windows and banged our pots and pans at, at and I think it was 7 p.m. every day. Um, and of course, there's sort of the daily grind of life, switching to remote teaching. There was, I think, one of the things, of course, was um, um, there's a kind of, you're, you're mentally preparing for a horizon, a return to normalcy horizon. You know, it's going to be the university says it's going to be two weeks, <laughs> then it says it's going to be three, three four weeks. And at, suddenly at the point where I think it became indefinite, which was sometime in April or May, where you knew that this was going to, this was a long haul, that moment was very scary in some ways. And I, I myself had some physical problems. I was, I had to go to the hospital for a heart problem in the summer of 2020. So, which is a normally quite, <laughs> unsettling thing but with, with covid and before vaccines it was kind of a, a, a eerie even more eerie experience to deal with so yeah i mean that those are my sort of memories and uh um and and being in i've lived in new york for 20 years but i've never ever seen streets so empty like unbelievably deserted like the most busy areas of the of manhattan uh, were deserted uh, for days and days and days and except for the ambulances you know going by so it's kind of strange uh you're the you're the second guest this week who has called that memory to mind really uh really? yeah and uh, the other one the architect who was talking about being in lower manhattan and yeah it's just the same it's just sort of like and and i had a it well i was living in princeton at that time and, and uh um of course princeton is a low density place sure. but even there right right this stillness and the quiet was and the sort of effect of you knew people were home right but they weren't out because the lights were on and walking the streets with a mask on empty streets i've i've said this before but you might appreciate it to me it felt like all of those cold war civil defense manuals i had read i felt like i was in the after somehow right of something really terrible that had happened instead of a pandemic that was happening yeah you're right absolutely because our, our mind wanders to historical precedents or maybe for us historians that yeah. <laughs> we right. tend to think of and you know the cold war is the most obvious thing uh but yeah i think uh i i didn't imagine that it would happen and it happened so quickly that was the other thing of course it happened within one or two weeks everybody got very scared very quickly so um i think and the whole i mean you all know this but everybody knows this but the whole the 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 groceries and the anxiety about food and everything you buy and all that, the phase that we all went through. Uh, but in New York, I think it's amplified because of the density 
there's a kind of density in the built environment that pushes people against each other. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was extremely odd, an odd experience. And I think I'm actually only now beginning to see some semblance of normalcy. Of course, many things have changed now. I mean, it's, I'm not saying anything new, but yeah, things have changed quite a bit. You are a, a historian that I associate with um, deep archival work. Sure. I mean, we all do. Yeah. But I mean, the kind of history you write. Yeah. I mean, and you're relying on archives too. I just was rereading a piece um, where you were in dialogue with another historian, and you were talking about the pieces of the Russian space yeah. archive that you were waiting yeah. to get your hands on, and of course. Right. So there's pandemic and now there's there's war, but I yeah, yeah. but I was thinking of you in that regard. But you know, you're a real you're you're a real archive right. historian, historian. So what was? Did you have stacks of digitized things, and so it was okay? I mean, what's it been like to be yeah. cut off from the place where you do your work? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, sure, um, absolutely. Uh, for all, all, I think all of us to some degree, all of historians. I think this is particularly true for PhD graduate students. Whose archival work has been interrupted dramatically, but yeah, I think for those historians, those among us whose archives are abroad, I think it's been incredibly uh, trying. I'm fortunately finishing up projects, so my archival work was done to some degree. Uh, so I don't have that anxiety. I mean, I have that anxiety in the future, and I, I'm I'm jealous of you know intellectual historians who can just maybe. Maybe I'll, I'll, that's that's my sort of next target: the history of ideas, because I don't have to do go to an archive. But <laughs> I do think that, uh, um, yeah, I, I, that's all. But I think in general, as a historian, we also find that archives are increasingly, increasingly becoming digitized and accessible. Sure. Um, and yeah, I think that there's a there's some ways, and I think for the, all the projects that I'm doing, I have ways around it. My one of my projects requires me to travel quite a bit globally. That was impossible, so. And we can talk about that. But yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think that was the one that's most effective. So. Well, let's let me ask you, first of all, about your book, Red Rockets, Glare, Space yeah. Flight and the Soviet Imagination, 1857 to 1957. And, I, and the reason I wanted to sort of um, well, I wanted to talk to you because I, I wanted I knew I could talk with you sort of big picture stuff about history of technology yeah, and the pandemic, sure. but also but also that book. Mm -hmm. um, and how you see that work now, particularly that we've gone through this time right. of intense, you know, technological need, um, right. big scientific teams. I mean, it's a time in which right. Americans and people around the world have once again gotten an education, even if they didn't want it, and sort of how <laughs> science works. That's right. Yeah, you know, I didn't. You know, there, the, the book was essentially a, a kind of intervention into an exploration about big state-funded scientific projects such as the space program. And my finding, if, if I can say that, was that I um, I found that there's a quite a significant portion of that story requires us to include regular people, populist narratives and movements and things, even in a very authoritarian state. I was arguing that um, what I called sort of engineering was co-produced with imagination so they're both sort of hand in hand and you had to sort of have the have the people who were the writers and the dreamers and those sort of and it's not just an engineering story but i think i i think that um that kind of um story is not very um distinct in the history of technology i think most uh, most of us you know if you've been trained in the kind of hughesian model of technological large-scale technological systems and there's there's a you know, entrepreneurs and reverse salience and, you know, all this sort of stuff that he threw out, right? It's a very, uh, to me, it's a kind of a limited story of there's infrastructure and there's a bunch of people who work around it. But it really, I think, ignores the enormous number of people, for example, users. and But it also ignores the, the people who were sort of maybe uh, consumers of it at a cultural level, of the, the cultural histories of electricity and electrical power. I think of those stories as together, as part of one, that it's, it's disingenuous to disentangle them and tell the hardcore story of technology and artifacts and the cultural story here. So I was trying to do that with this book, put them together and see what happens. And so I think certainly with something like COVID, and I've thought a lot about this, as I'm sure you have, and many of your guests have, how do we tell this story later about the vaccines, uh, but also many other aspects of COVID. Um, 
And I, I think for sure, a part of the story involves the public and how to tell that story is going to be very tricky. It's not just scientists working in Pfizer and wherever and Johnson and Johnson. It's a, uh, the public is part of the story for better or worse. Um, and public perceptions are, you know, I, I was just thinking very sort of in a very sort of trivial, semi-trivial way about these kinds of ways in which the pandemic, um, has shaped the, the public has sort of maybe shaped things like the whole Skype versus Zoom thing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Skype suddenly disappears. I'm sure you, you guys talked about this and why that happened. There's also other things that are happening. For example, with, um, uh, you, you go to restaurants now, it's contact free menus, right? And things like right. that, or, um, the whole hand sanitizer industry, which is a, you know, kind of, technology the technological system or or even the mask industry for sure i'm sure you guys have had yeah. those are you know types of things i've been thinking about as a kind of stories that have to be really told um with with a deep understanding of the public however you want to define the public so that's the way i'm sort of thinking through and that's what i get from that book actually it's a, you know even the um the technologies that people missed i mean that was sort of from the lockdown phase too, you remember people were producing these little videos in their home and, and there were a sort of mini genre of people producing videos in which it looked like they were flying on an airplane, but they were yes. really just sitting in their house. Yes, I do remember that. And so there was this technological longing. Yes, you know. absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that that's a perfect way to articulate. There is a technological longing. Um, I, I don't know. There's a longing for something. Uh, um, and I think the kinds of technical systems that have surrounded, let's say, modern Western nations and post-war era, you know, the airplanes and trains and subways, especially communications infrastructure. I think um, um, we we were robbed of that instantly. I, I don't know if robbed is the right word, but we, we didn't have access to it. Or it was, you know, there's a risk factor immediately if you get on a plane or a train. So risk comes into that every time you do do this, um, so I think there is a kind of, I think our, our cultural um, attachments to these kinds of systems are really an important part of the story, mm -hmm. even though, you know, capitalism, however you want to define it, is also very much uh, a, a part of the story is that there's enormous environmental costs to many of these systems. But we do have, it was amazing to see a kind of nostalgia for these systems during the hardcore lockdown where people were like, oh, I miss the subways and I miss uh, driving my car. Right. Or, Missing, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But then the other, um, you know, aspect of this that I think is really, you know, important in light of, in light of your first book is, is about sort of the formation of national identity through technology. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've been wondering like how you think about about that. I mean, maybe you could say a little bit about how the because I, I mean the thing one of the things I, I like about the that book is I mean yeah. you really challenge this idea that it's an easy path to constructing a national identity yeah. around a, a technology or that it's a single technology. Right, right. Um but you know, I mean I feel like the pandemic has thrown a lot of that tension um up in the air for us to consider because all of the statistics, even what I reported just a few minutes ago, the epidemiological statistics come to us in national packages. Mm -hmm. But we know we're experiencing an, an international pandemic and mm -hmm. the scientific apparatus that's leading right. us out of it, we hope, right. or leading us to a new phase of it, is international teams. So science, as it's as it's absolutely as it unfolds and as it's worked, is international to its core. Yeah. But credit taking and sense making often operates in national within national boundaries. And, yeah. and I feel like you were taking that yeah. on in that book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a very uh, apt way to put it. Absolutely. I mean, post-war science and probably even some of it even before then, post-war large-scale scientific endeavors have all been multinational things. I mean, as I think historian Eddie Abraham said about just nuclear energy, that no state traveled alone, even the United States. 
Well, it wasn't, you know, indigenous. There's all sorts of German, Canadian, British stuff coming in, not Eastern European, Hungarian. So I think all of this, but the nation wants to take claim. There's a claim made by the nation that this is ours, uh, when, especially with large-scale technological systems. And so it is with, with the vaccine here. I think that tension between global science or large-scale science being very much international, but the nation, when the, when the sort of object of the, 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 the science becomes visible and legible to the public, the nation steps in and says, this is ours. And uh, it doesn't say it in a very, you know, some, some nations say it in a very vulgar way, this is ours. You know, maybe the Russian Sputnik vaccine, this was ours. Mm-hmm. And some nations do it almost implicitly. You don't have to say it. Well, of course, Pfizer is, you know, you know, there's a kind of, especially I think that it works with the United States. Nothing needs to happen. You just need to sort of implicitly claim it. And But I think it's it has been interesting and as you say, there's an, another point of tension, which is that the virus doesn't care about borders. The virus is everywhere, right? So, so, but it, it is interesting with the efficacy of certain vaccines, right? Um, for example, Sputnik was interesting because initially it was quite extremely effective and it was mm-hmm. right out. So the first one right out to the gate, but mm-hmm. it's uh, effectiveness, but there's a steep attrition curve. Like it's not so much effective after a while. So I think it was interesting why, how, um, the effectiveness of these vaccines was it becomes an important metric also in national pride and i think the cuban vaccine is is really interesting today i forgot what it's called it's like soberana or something and cuba developed this vaccine and it's supposedly 92 93 percent effective i think that as a comparison again some enterprising graduate student might do a comparison of the vaccine multiple vaccines globally there's also the Chinese vaccine, which, by the way, is the one used in South Asia, in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh largely. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has um, lower effectiveness against the Delta variant. So, um, right. so I think all of these yeah, things the, are going to play out. Yeah. The Cuban one is a Soberana. Um, and yeah. I, I mean, it's really uh, ties a lot of things together in your research all in, in one package when Russia comes out with the Sputnik yeah, vaccine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but let's linger on that for just a second, because does Sputnik still carry that kind of cultural weight and power within Russia? Or is that some sort of signaling to the world? I guess it doesn't have to be right either or. And and I ask that because in, in the United States or the ones that were that were developed in country companies inside the United States. Right. Could have called them Apollo. Um, <laughs> didn't. Well. It's funny that you know, I think there was, yeah, they didn't, but there were people, I think, there were sort of online people who, who suggested a, a, a man on the moon type of mission to get the vaccine, uh-huh. right? This, sure. this, this, uh, yeah. this, uh, I also this heard Manhattan Project, too, Manhattan which I felt Project like was a bad metaphor for yeah, life saving yeah, drug. Yeah, yeah, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> but definitely you, you hear if we could put on a man on the moon in whatever years, we could do this, right? Uh, no, uh, to go back to your question, Sputnik definitely has a resonance in the Russian population, as does Gagarin and these heavyweight space icons in a way that is really um, not comparable in any way to America. Um, you, um, I, 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 yeah, Gagarin is not just, uh, or Sputnik is not just, you know, these words, these are like culturally important touchstones for everybody who grows up there. So, uh, this was a moment of pride. So I think Sputnik wasn't an accidental thing. This was a, we were first in space with Sputnik and therefore this. And so it's a very, that's why I'm saying it, it's a very sort of, um, um, you know, uh, hammer on the nail type of, um, mm-hmm. kind of a nationalist, uh, na- uh, you know, sort of the intersection between science and nationalism. But I think for sure, I think, uh, as I said, I think a great project might be some sort of comparative history. And also, you know, comparative, I, I would caution in the sense that uh, so much of this knowledge is circulating. It's not like they're working only with their own piece of knowledge. It's all circulating in journals. And I, I believe there was some key information produced by a Chinese scientist just before he died that was really important. I think he coded all the um, enzymes and so forth. So that was really important for all, all the teams working everywhere. So, um, yeah. And, and that becomes... Um can become very tricky and controversial at times, you know, thinking back to the, um, the so-called lab leak, mm-hmm. uh, issue, you know, in the lab in, in, in Wuhan, um, which 
early on, I think even the president of the United States wanted to somehow weaponize that to say, look, this is these are nations fighting nations. I mean, he he went back into this sort of Cold War and anti-Chinese mode. Right, right. And then somebody, I think, had to take him aside. Well, probably they didn't bother, but, you know, somebody said, oh, well, actually, these labs, there's international participation in these yeah, labs by the way, in China. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Even the labs themselves were international collaboration. So, um, yeah, I think to suggest any of, any, any of this stuff, um, certainly... Pharma, the pharmaceutical industry, but also in space industry, it's, it's very, it's very hard to say what is national anymore because it's all, you know, in, in global sort of the neoliberal capitalist order, it's all deeply connected to everything else. It's very hard to disentangle. Let me take one second, just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Asif Siddiqui today, and I wanted to, um, let's, let me ask you about your new book, actually, Departure Gates, Colonial yes. Histories of Space on Earth. Um, we're waiting for this, so maybe you can give us a little bit of a of a sense of what it's about. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I'm I'm working on a project that initially was, direct, you know, sort of thinking about how space activities um, reshape um, kind of uh, communities on Earth rather than in space. You know, what's happening. So it's a kind of histories of space on Earth. But it is a kind of history, fundamentally histories of infrastructure, as I discovered getting into the space stuff, that there's an enormous amount of infrastructure globally on the ground, uh, antennas and tracking stations and launch sites and um, um, all sorts of things that are strewn across the globe, but particularly in post-colonial spaces. So particularly uh, in those in the global south, if you will. And they were put there by NASA or the Russians or the Europeans largely to support their space programs because they had to track things or launch things at certain points. And so I was in looking at that story, which is an incredibly rich story, I began to discover certain common patterns. Um, one was that much of a lot of this infrastructure displaced a lot of indigenous people from their uh, living environments. Um, and um, so that was one set of problems I was dealing with. The other was um, that some of this infrastructure also destabilized local social systems and orders in some sense, for example, particularly in places like um, uh, in, in Africa, like in Madagascar and Algeria, there were deep sort of conflicts with the infrastructure that bubbled up into major, major national conflicts. Uh, the, the other, the third part that I'm interested in is the sort of scientists essentially created the, the zones of people-less places like this is where we're going to put this because this place doesn't have people but in fact it did have people and so i'm interested in the way science creates these places um and finally um i i look at the ways in which some of this infrastructure uh can reinforce um racial hierarchies of these particular places because they they employ certain people they exclude other people that sort of thing a major tracking station was in south africa during apartheid to track the uh, spaceships are circling the earth and one of the demands south africa made for example was that no um, african-american nasa employees could visit that location in the 60s it would only have to be white people so this story is a very interesting one nasa we retained the station until the mid 70s uh, so yeah all these stories i think i think tell us a little bit about the ways in which space flight which is fundamentally about kind of an emancipate emancipatory Mm -hmm. utopian and kind of move out, 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 out beyond the earth generated so much friction and dislocation and violence if you will on earth so yeah that's that's what the book is about and i i i uh, so yeah i've been getting more and more infra infrastructure and a little bit into disasters which i know you are the sort of the person i should defer to on that because uh, so many of these places ended up um in a lot of um shall we say failed modes of operation disasters and so forth so I was thinking as you're talking about, you know, Peter Redfield, um, yeah. Peter Redfield's book, Space in the Tropics. And, and I had not even, so I'm really glad you're working on this area. And yeah. I mean, his book comes from an anthropological perspective. That's true. But, yeah. Um, this idea that the, um, which you're developing, which, uh, this emancipatory, you know, I mean, I've been watching Star Trek a lot with my sure. kids lately. We're watching yeah. the movies, you know, and of course oh, it's yeah. founded in this idea of a sort of post-racial, yeah, yeah, yeah. distant future in which right. the problems of the planet have all been solved. And it's, right. and it's nation, of course, doesn't mean anything anymore. But sure. um, 
but of course, those the early shows are being produced at the height of this moment of of you know independence movements, decolonization, sure, um, and reinscription of a power dynamic around the world in which you have some countries that, as you say, become I guess centers where you know sites of technological production can take place, but not ownership or not exactly. participation. Exactly. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah, that's that's so true. I mean. There is a, one of the most interesting stories is the one in, in Kenya where Italian uh, physicists in collaboration with NASA basically uh, put a platform. It's just off the coast of Kenya in, in, in the Indian Ocean. They, they mm. set up a platform to launch rockets into space. Why did they do that there? Because it's close to the equator and you can generate some extra velocity going up. You can take more payload up to space. But what happened was in doing that, they displaced an entire community, which was their ground base on the coast of Kenya. A local, these, uh, this, this ethnic uh, Somali community was completely moved out by the Italians in collaboration with the Kenyan government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now this place has become, um, it was weird because the story is so weird is that, uh, since the sixties, tens of thousands of Italians have immigrated to this place permanently to Kenya. It's a city called Melindi. It's full of Italians who were escaping some form of uh, wanted a tax haven or they were indicted for some crime. A lot of criminals showed up there. Uh, but the sad ending of the story, if, if it's an ending at all, is that there's a now a massive sex trafficking trade at Melindi. And so it's all tied together into the space center that they tried to create, uh, which was eventually abandoned. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, underlying, again, infrastructure produces, uh, re- it rearranges kind of the, kind of the social order. I'm interested in how space, which is pro- spoken of in such utopian kind of egalitarian terms. Um, and, you know, uh, all infrastructure has this kind of, uh, I think, uh, imagination built into it. But mm-hmm. like a bridge or uh, a bridge, you know, OK, we're going to build a bridge here and move families out. There's something about the bridge that you have to imagine, OK, this might be better for our community. But if you say, well, we're going to build a launch site here and move all these people out, the launch site has... It, there's no, it has to be argued on some larger national imperative. This is good for Kenya. We don't know why. Right. On like the bridge, right. you know. So that discussion is really interesting to me, how the nation makes that argument saying that you must sacrifice your livelihood for the good of the space program, which will be good for Kenya. So that's what I'm trying to get into in this book. Yeah. How do you see, um, you know, when you look at the kind of narratives that were produced, I mean, even going back to the Soviet um, material right. pre-Soviet material you were looking at when narratives of um, you know or imaginaries as you as yeah. the imagination um, of what technology can do is formed particularly around space how does disease factor in yeah I mean I, I you know again I'm sort of uh, I have to defer to you on this like how either science fiction writers or how scientists thought about what disease would be in space or, or disease is an earthly thing no, that's a, that's an excellent question. And I think there have been people who've been grappling with this stuff since about the 50s in terms of the relationship between uh, pathogens, but also larger scale disease uh, and space exploration and especially biomedicine specialists. But I think there's the there's kind of two sides. One is that there's something from outer space which would come. Uh, into Earth and cause some devastation, some sort of pathogen or something. Things from outer space. Could come. This is Andromeda strain. Absolutely. Okay. So, yeah, and a very famous uh, 1970, I think. I, yeah, yeah. Um, roughly early 70s movie. Um, uh, but the the reverse of that is that um, the kind of what what when we go out there, what do we take with us? And so, for example, we could be contaminating. We might have already contaminated the moon, for example, because humans have been there. Uh, and lots of robots have been to Mars, may have been contaminated. So there's all sorts of protocols built into, you have to essentially sanitize the spaceships that you sent. But, you know, do we really follow them adequately? So we may have already infected Mars with God knows what. So there's both sides of the coin about both stuff coming from elsewhere and us uh, taking our stuff elsewhere. Um, but in terms of the human space, I know that during COVID, for example, you know, the International Space Station kept operating permanently through COVID. Um, you know, they had to follow the same protocols. Uh, but the thing about ISS was they were already f- so strict about these things, even before COVID happened. You had to mm-hmm. I- quarantine and isolate the crews two weeks before a launch anyway. So mm-hmm. when COVID happened, mm-hmm. their their systems for quarantine already sort of were already in play. You know, so um, as far as I know, I don't 
I could be wrong. Nobody has gotten COVID in space yet. So, mm. but you know, it's it's not unlikely that it could happen. Um, and so, and uh, so, but yeah, I think, um, but yeah, disease and pathogens. There's a, there's a great degree of um, care taken not to have astronauts who are sick go up into space. So there's a quarantine period. But also, yeah. So, mm, but it, it's it. Um... Even to this point you were talking about before, and one could imagine, I don't know, that in preparation for going up um, for a period of time on the space station, has anyone gone up during the pandemic? And I, and I ask because um, different countries have different vaccine protocols. They're using different vaccines. Yeah. They would have to establish a sort of a standard, like this is the COVID vaccine every right. every astronaut should, yeah. should I, take. We come I, back yeah, to I, these problems of na- nation right. you know, yeah. fa- filtering into the technological yeah. decision-making. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point. So yeah, multiple nations and nationalities are going and have been going up. They didn't stop because of COVID in, in March 2020. Uh, so you had principally the Americans and the Russians, but also Canadians, uh, French people, Germans, Japanese. So um, yeah, excuse me. So f- as far as I know, and I'm, I'm not confident, I, I think the Russian vaccine was not recognized by international partners as sufficiently robust, mm-hmm. shall we say. So I, I knew that this was an issue at some point. Well, that's and an uncomfortable I, meeting, huh? Yeah, exactly. Right. So I, I'm not sure exactly how it was resolved, but certainly um, I, I understand from my sort of indirect sources within NASA, this was an issue that came up in the fall of 2020. I'm sorry, in the in early 2021. Mm. In the vac- yeah, so about what to do. Um, but yeah, I think this, this is a perfect example of how international protocols, you know, begin to clash against each other when you're doing something collaboratively, right? Because national nations have different ways of dealing with uh, national emergencies. And so uh, from and what I understand, again, the Russians were very defensive. They say, no, Sputnik is great. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, ultimately, again, I could be wrong, but my suspicion is they, they had to revaccinate to something that was more inter- considered more robust. So. Let me just take us one second to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. And I'm talking to Asif Siddiqui today about the history of technology and, and space exploration and, and COVID. And I, I want to, um, you know, you've been talking, um, I think you've been very busy these last weeks with the war breaking out. And yeah. People coming to you and asking about Russian science. And right. this question about the International Space Station has been put to you. I was fascinated to see um, you were interviewed um, in, for an article in Nature yeah, and you said something that made me one of these moments. You kind of sit up, <laughs> and you said, um, "This will fracture the relationship." Talking about the war, yeah, um, built after the end of the Cold War. When historians look back, it will be 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union, to 2022, and you're talking about the end of a period of time, yeah, in which there was partnership in space exploration, and I assume other technological projects that are related, right? So we've reached a breaking. Point now, and it wasn't yeah. COVID that did it. It was, yeah. it was good old-fashioned European <laughs> right. land-based war. genocide. Yeah, yeah, basically. A horrific war. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think, and, you know, I, I don't want to predict anything, but I can't see it surviving this, really? um, this okay. relationship because of a number, unless, you know, of course, unless Putin goes and, you know, some something else happens at the level of that, that of Russian government. But if things stay the same, it's hard to imagine the, the survival of this relationship. Not because of, I have to say, and I've maybe said this in the Nature article, that the relationship between astronauts and cosmonauts, the Russians and Americans on the ground is very, everybody will agree that it's very cordial, it's very respectful, they work together, they're very professional. It's at the management and political level that things have really broken down. Uh, but yeah, I think my guess is 1991, you know, space station, this international space station was essentially conceived in 1992, which was the last year of Bush one. And, and then he handed over the ideas, the idea to Clinton and it was signed under Clinton. But I think that, and then right now is 2022. I do think that the ISS will trudge along in some fashion. I don't know when, but that relationship will be disentangled. I don't know how long down the road. And, but I do think it was already happening. I think COVID mm-hmm. put a lot of pressure on it. And then this thing, um, this, um, um, uh, the crisis with, um, the Ukrainian thing completely kind of fractured it. So, 
And what about the the role of sort of space entrepreneurs in this in this moment? You know, I'm thinking, of course, of Elon Musk, who I think yesterday was tweeting a personal challenge to fight Putin. I mean, he's sort of one of these moments where <laughs> Musk needs to be back in the news cycle. But but it actually it calls back to something we were talking about a minute ago, the problem of the nation. Um, and, you know, Elon Musk is his own brand. It's yeah. He gets beyond those restrictions. Yeah, yes, of, I mean, yeah. he's not, you know, he's he's not from, yeah. I don't know if he was born in the United States, but I mean, it's family heritage, not the United States. Right, it's right. South African. Right. And so, South Africa, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I think about that in that sense. And then also back to this issue of like safety protocols and health in space. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what, <laughs> does, does Elon Musk demand that you be vaccinated before you know you would go up in 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 one of his uh, in one of the SpaceX missions? I'm not. I'm yeah, not I mean, sure. I, I think. think yeah, think so. my, my my take on it is probably not very generous to Elon Musk uh, for many reasons. But I think yeah, he he. I, when, now that the capitalists are in the in the game, I think the the show is very different, run very differently. Mm. There's a uh, different producer, different director, different actors. So <laughs> I think yeah. what you have, uh, what, yeah, I think, and there, there are lots of, there have been, um, you can look this up, lots of problems at the factory in Hawthorne, California that SpaceX runs, uh, in terms of COVID, serious problems of not following COVID protocols because he wants to get the rockets out. And number two, there have been lots of problems with, um, um, kind of racial incidents in the factory. So I think, there are lots of issues that he's dealing with on, um, and but he doesn't have, he's not accountable in some sense because he's his own company. So yeah, I do think that whatever Musk and Bezos and these guys, whatever they do, they're operating in, in a kind of no man's land in, in many ways. They, they, they have to abide by some kind of semblance of federal regulation, just like commercial airlines, like commercial companies do. Uh, but, it's really um, their their clout is really outsized, especially Musk. I think because mm. he he provides a service now to the U.S. government, which is right. so um, it's a very it's a, he has a kind of uh, a powerful position. Well, we're almost up on time, and um, I wanted to take a second here at the at the end. You know, this is one of those times. So you're a historian of technology among many hats that you wear. And um, we both participated over the years from the Society of the History of Technology. It's kind of my home. My, I don't know if you see it as your home meeting. I guess we all have our is, sort of yeah. home academic yeah. meeting. And, um, and this is one of those moments in time through this pandemic that I've thought, we just need many more historians of technology. We just yeah. need many more people who can, the kind of conversation that we've had right. to place the for example, the techno enthusiasm of the right. mRNA into some social context to understand that, hey, it hasn't reached large parts of the world, most yeah. of the world. And guess what? It's it's not. And why? And to be able to even ask that question right, has right. been right. challenging. I guess I'm asking you to make a pitch for the for yeah. our discipline. <laughs> no, I think absolutely. I, I'm a shot. Society for the History of Technology is my home base, too. And I really think for for. A couple of reasons. One that you already pointed out, there is a kind of techno enthusiasm um, for solutions to social problems uh, that technology will solve. It's sort of like a technological panacea of it's like the app mentality, this app will save life, you know. But we we buy into it in the West that technology is the sort of panacea. But I think it it obfuscates the real inequalities, right, in technological systems and techniques. And of course the vaccine. And I was mentioning Bangladesh. Bangladesh is a country that uh, you know, polls have shown all, the majority of the population would take the vaccine if they had access. But in fact, Bangladesh lacks vaccines because it doesn't have the hard currency to buy it. So it gets a vaccine gifts from China and other places. So this is a classic example of um, how technology is related to sort of the public good, but it, it is also seen as a kind of, you know, once we're, we're okay, we're, you know, once the West is okay, we don't need to worry about it. But of course we do for both humanitarian reasons but also for collective reasons, right? And the second reason I would say the historians of technology are really important is because of, of I think, again, it's about infrastructure. I know I've been studying it, but I think the moments of times of crisis, like natural disasters or global pandemics, infrastructure becomes a site uh, where inequalities, you know, economic, racial, uh, gender inequalities play that played out and become really visible and legible. Right. And I think historians of technology are really well suited to study those 
those sites and why that's happening and tell us a little bit about the, the harder truths about those things. Let me remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Although these days, as we're leading up to the 500th episode, you can pretty much catch COVID calls almost any time. And in fact, starting at uh, uh, 5 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday, you will be able to catch COVID calls around the clock for 48 hours um, as we open the digital archive. So just wanted to give a plug for that. And I want to um, let you know that in uh, just an hour from now, I'll be talking with film historian and analyst Ellen Cohen, and we'll be talking about the film Contagion. So please do tune in for that. And I want to thank my guest, Asif Siddiqui, for this wide-ranging conversation. And I knew it would be fascinating talking to you. You have so many projects going. Um, yeah. And thanks for taking the time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Scott. I really, really enjoyed it. Stay healthy, everyone, and we'll see you next time on COVID Calls.